If you've been reading your devotional booklet that I handed out to everyone, the Promised Treasures devotional booklet, you may have come across the devotion for, I think it was last night, either today or last night, where uh, the author mentions that in Luther's time and, and before in the, in the early church, that when, when somebody was being baptized, they would have the person taste a little bit of salt uh, to remind them that they're a different person now. They have... They are the salt of the earth now, that Jesus, like Jesus says. They're worth something. They are, they are the light to the world, all that kind of stuff. And so people at Senior Saint Service told me that uh, they had never heard that before, that people used to taste salt when they were baptized long ago. And I remember hearing about it, and I remember reading it in Luther's baptismal booklet. And I'm going to read that to you, just a little bit from it, because if you haven't read Luther's baptismal booklet, you're in for a treat it's something that might surprise you, what he says about baptism. But this is where the salt thing comes, along with some other things that people used to do when they got baptized that we no longer do. He says, out of a sense of Christian commitment, I appeal to all those who baptize, sponsor infants, or witness a baptism to take to heart the tremendous work and great solemnity present here. For here in the words of these prayers, you hear how plaintively and earnestly the Christian church brings the infant to God, confesses before him with such unchanging, undoubting words that the infant is possessed by the devil and a child of sin and wrath, and so diligently asks for help and grace through baptism that the infant may become a child of God. Therefore, you have to realize that it is no joke at all to take action against the devil and not only to drive him away from the little child, but also to hang around the child's neck such a mighty, lifelong enemy. Isn't that interesting that Luther has us picture baptism as hanging an enemy of the devil around your child's neck, like a, an emulet, like, or a talisman of some kind. Thus, it is extremely necessary to stand by the poor child with all your heart and with a strong faith, and to plead with great devotion that God, in accordance with these prayers, would not only free the child from the devil's power, but also strengthen the child so that the child might resist him valiantly in life and in death. I'm afraid people turn out so badly after baptism because we have dealt with them in such a cold and casual way and have prayed for them at their baptism without any zeal at all. Bear in mind, too, that in baptism, the external ceremonies are least important, such as, now listen to this, blowing under the eyes, making the sign of the cross, well, we still do that, putting salt in the mouth, or spit lay in the ears and nose. Well, that we definitely don't do anymore. Anointing the breast and shoulders with oil, smearing the head with chrism, it's probably some kind of balm or something, putting on the christening robe, some people do that, placing a burning candle in the child's hand. <laughs> we don't place a burning candle in a baby's hand anymore. And whatever else has been added by humans, to embellish baptism. For certainly a baptism can occur without any of these things, and they are not the actual devices from which the devil shrinks or flees. He sneers at even greater things than these. Here, things must really get serious. Instead, see to it that you are present there in true faith, that you listen to God's word and that you pray along earnestly. For wherever the priest says, let us pray, he is exhorting you to pray with him. Moreover, uh, all sponsors and the others present ought to speak along with him the words of his prayer in their hearts to God. 
For this reason, the priest should speak these prayers very clearly and slowly so that the sponsors can hear and understand them and can also pray with the priest with one mind in their hearts, carrying, carrying before God the need of the little child with all earnestness on the child's behalf, setting themselves against the devil with all their strength and demonstrating that they take seriously what is no joke to the devil. For this reason, it is right and proper not to allow drunken and boorish priests to baptize, nor to select good-for-nothings for godparents. <laughs> Instead, fine, moral, serious, upright priests and godparents ought to be chosen, who can be expected to treat the matter with seriousness and true faith, lest this high sacrament be abandoned to the devil's mockery and dishonor God, who in this sacrament showers upon us the vast and boundless riches of his grace. Well, there you go. Pretty serious stuff, huh? Well, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Gooding University Inn in Gooding, Idaho. Historic, affordable, fun. That is, if you enjoy spending your vacation at a renovated tuberculosis sanitarium. From the late 1800s to the 1960s, hundreds of thousands of people across this nation spent many lonely, anxious, depressed years in a TB hospital like the one in Gooding, Idaho, out in the middle of nowhere. The idea was to isolate the diseased from their family, and these sanitariums were built away from populated areas so that the, the disease could be controlled. Now, unless you had a mother or a grandparent or great-grandparent who was in one of these facilities, we don't know what it was like to be cooped up in a state-run sanitarium. But we all know what it's like to be cooped up in our house during a global pandemic, don't we? Isolation brought about by the coronavirus made many of us feel lonely, anxious, and depressed. Once most societal activities ceased during the pandemic, a lot of us craved a solution, didn't we? We craved a vaccination from the coronavirus so that life could proceed and we could get back to work, live and gather. Now, when was the last time you got a vaccine for, I don't know, the flu, tetanus or the shingles? Yeah, probably pretty recently, right? I mean, children are vaccinated to ward off all kinds of diseases. Well, while it's not used as a vaccination, salt is a very useful substance. It's been useful for most civilizations on this planet for centuries. It's often referred to in the Bible as both a sweetening and preserving agent. Well, you probably know this already. I mean, on the ships long ago, they used to salt all the pork, right? Make it last for months. Salt pork, that's what you'd eat for months on, on, on the high seas. Old Testament sacrifices were often salted before being offered. And the prophet Elisha used salt to sweeten bad, undrinkable water for the people of Israel, as you heard from 2 Kings. Later in the Bible, Jesus calls you the salt of the earth, meaning that your life, your life tastes, not your lice, but your life, <laughs> your life tastes, it's a different drink of water than others since you've been baptized. You know, you know there's something unique joyful and wholesomeness in the way you speak, live, and act 
As St. Paul says in his epistle, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, many of the baptismal rites of the early church included tasting a tiny bit of salt. Adults who were baptized as converts after they had renounced the devil and his works and confessed the Apostles' Creed were given salt to taste, to put on their lips before being baptized. This is one of the reasons why Luther included the use of salt in his earliest writing on baptism, as you heard from the baptismal booklet. Salt was a visible and sensible way of reminding the baptized that their lives are now different and distinct from the world. So, if you want to go get a little cup of salt there and taste it as a reminder that you are different and distinct from the multitude of unbelievers out there in the world. Salt, according to Scripture, seasons and sweetens, yet it also preserves and keeps. It was a precious commodity in the lives of ancient people that they, they kept salt everywhere in their homes. They had large amounts of it, probably more than you and I keep at our homes. In fact, the root of the word salary comes from the Latin word salarium. I'm not an expert in Latin, but I looked this up. Soldiers were, Roman soldiers were sometimes paid in salt instead of cash because they needed salt at home to preserve the food for their family. It was, it was worth its weight in cash. After the prophet Elijah, Elisha succeeded Elijah, he was told that the water in Jericho was so bad and undrinkable that something had to be done. It probably was like well water, you know, full of minerals or just poisoned with iron and minerals. So Elijah asked for some water in a bowl and placed some salt in it. Then he threw the salt into the spring, sweet, uh, sweetening and refreshing, it, re refreshing all the water for the people to continue to use and drink. And of course, as you heard Elijah say, thus says the Lord, the water is now good. God changed the water with his word. God healed that dreadful water with salt. And that's kind of weird because, you know, you don't dare drink salted water today. But in this instance... It was made good with the salt and God's word. And perhaps that emphasizes what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? What kind of pain are you enduring or suffering now? Is there anything sour or troubling or unfruitful in your life? Is your personal health compromised? Or are there some bitter or strained relationships with people? Is your employment stressful? Any number of things. You know, amid life's sour and bitter experiences, Jesus comes to sweeten, enliven, and refresh you through his healing word. You are God's own dear child. Baptized, washed, and salted, if you were. In Christ. This Lenten walk reminds us that Jesus died on Calvary's cross to vaccinate us completely from sin and eternal death. God is not distant, but promises to deliver you from sin to heal those things most broken in your life. 
The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's Psalm 34, 18. Jesus comes to preserve you and keep you, which is also a funny thing for our modern ears to hear because when we hear the word preserve, what do we think? Jelly? <laughs> you know, something in a jar uh, with some kind of preservative in it? Well, you know, this is not quite what the context of the Bible. It's kind of that thing, but the ancient people of God often use salt to preserve meat and other food so that it would last much longer. And even when the priests offer grain offerings and burnt offerings at the temple, apparently they salted some of these things. This preservation and keeping also took place when God saved you. Not, not, he didn't pickle you in a jar, but you know what I mean. He, he's extended your life eternally by his own suffering and death. He has saved you, not with salt, but with his precious son's blood, he preserves you keeps you going for eternity. Jesus died as the sacrifice on the cross to vaccinate and save you. And as your great high priest, he has salted and offered up for you and now baptized you into him. His death holds no power over you. Your, well, I, I should say, because of his death, your death holds no power over you. Your life is preserved under the shelter of His wings. And even though this temporal life will end because we get sick and die, your hope is not in this life only. Since Jesus rose from the dead on Easter, our weak mortal bodies are promised to be raised as pure, eternal bodies without sin and disease. This means that you really are living a life that is truly preserved forever. This present or eternal death is not, uh, the death that we're going to have here pretty soon is not eternal death, and that news, that news sweetens life now with renewed joy and purpose. So again, take a little bit of salt, put it on the tongue, taste it, and remember. Sadly, many people still live hopelessly without any comfort when faced with death, but Jesus warns us about losing our saltiness. Salt is not within us, but God gives salt to, to us just as Elijah placed the salt in the water to sweeten the spring for drinking. When a Christian dies, he or she is promised to be with the Lord forever. Because of that, we read words of comfort, dwell on God's promises of life in Christ, and sing our hymns with joy. That's why St. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Your saltiness makes you hopeful, joyful, and appealing to anyone who sees or knows you, even though you may not be feeling it yourself. Christ's words is the source of sweetening and seasoning in life. So, my friends, Christ is with you now, sweetening and preserving all your life and those all around you. He promises you a, vaccin a vaccination from eternal death and preserves you now and for eternity. I told you we were gonna, you were going to hear, hear the word preserve a lot tonight, right? <laughs> the only way salt is depleted or lost is when we fail to hear God's word 
and receive his sacraments regularly. And even though life is daily torn by sin, messed up relationships and faltering health, Jesus promises to preserve you and to work all things for your good and the good of others. He will sweeten all things with renewed hope and purpose. By his resurrection from the dead, you are now sweetening, you are now a sweetening and preserving salt to the world. So amen. And may the peace of God which passes all human understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.